Well, hello everyone and welcome to episode four of the Enter Sad Men podcast. Uh, I want to start off uh, this evening just to remind everyone um, how you can listen to us and where you can find us because we are literally everywhere uh, now. We're on Twitter with the uh, at Enter Sad Men handle. We're on Facebook, just search for the Enter Sad Man podcast. We're on Podbean, we're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, and uh, we're on www.entersadmen.co.uk. And we're probably down the bottom of your garden somewhere if you care to look. So last week, gentlemen, um, we had a we had a hell of a of a week, didn't we? Last week, so um, a reminder for everybody was was what our, our Godfathers of Rock Part One uh, last week, where we uh, reviewed albums by Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, and Black Sabbath. In our view, the three pioneers of the entire genre uh and we the albums we reviewed were led zepp 4 we uh, reviewed machine head deep purple and we reviewed uh, paranoid by black sabbath and it was a very interesting conversation guys wasn't it i had a blast last week because partly because i discovered paranoid or rediscovered paranoid which i hadn't heard in ages but it was just, it was one of those weeks, wasn't it, where you couldn't really have picked three bigger albums for the time to talk about, could you? Yeah, now what I liked about the idea was that the first two episodes had been strictly the albums we'd wanted, didn't they? They were, you know, the, the, the first album we'd ever bought and our favourite album. So it was very much on our terms. And then last week we thought, you know what, let's go back in time. Let's go back to the Jurassic Age of rock. But let's build it around... Not necessarily our choices, but just three of the greatest songs. Pick the albums from them and see if we enjoy them. And we kind of, you know, we, we love the music so much. We knew we'd love them. And the scores, Rich, as um, as I'm sure you can tell us, um, bear that out. Or, or bear that out in uh, 66% of the case, should I say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and let, let me just r- remind us all and everyone listening of, of the scores. Um Paranoid and Black Sabbath, Steve's overall album average. Remember, everyone, we score each album track by track. Generally, Steve and I give them uh, full or half marks, whereas Mark uh, does his scores to about five decimal places. But but, but um, <laughs> o- overall, uh, Paranoid, um, Steve rated it at uh, 7.06, Mark at 6.98, and uh, I was a pretty much dead seven. Um, so again, so our... Our scores for this album were pretty consistent. We varied, we varied sort of track by track in terms of which were our our favourites and our not so good tracks. But it came out an average of well seven point oh two, I guess, if we're if we're being that precise. And I mean, it, how that rates with you know the albums we've talked about so far, which as Steve said, have been favourites to a degree or other of ours. Either you know the, the first album we bought or, or what we believe are our favourite albums of all time. So I mean that's that's the lowest scoring album of our uh, podcasts so far. Deep Purple was was a lot higher. We we loved that that album. The three of us, Steve scored it was an eight point three. I mean mine was pretty much identical. Mark's score for Machine Head was a whopping eight point nine. Uh, I think that's his highest score of any album to date. You know, looking back through the stats, and and that gave um, Machine Head an overall score of eight point five which um, sadly for me uh, beats Russian moving pictures. So they, they rise to the, the top of the Hall of Fame. But they're pipped to the post by 
Led Zepp 4, which managed to score an unbelievable 8.56, with Steve giving it an 8.1, Mark an 8.9 virtually, and myself around an 8.7. So just shows just the, the entire strength of that album, which I'm sure everyone will, will hear um, us raving about if they re-listen to, uh, to last week's podcast. So... Yeah, I mean, it's a Led Zeppelin climb to the top position on the Hall of Fame, and I mean that, and that's a massive score. It's, it's, I think it's going to be a while till, if any, out other album we choose beats it. It's going to be fascinating. Um, so, what, what, what were your thoughts, guys, on seeing those scores? Here are some statistics, right? What separates Zeppelin Four from Machine Head is a score of zero point zero six. That's how close it is. And we're nine albums in, be 12 by the end of this show, but nine albums in at the moment. And they're, the top eight are separated, separated by less than a single point. So we have talked about eight absolutely colossal albums so far. My, my, my biggest takeaway from this is that, well, I've got several takeaways from this, but number one is that a week after hailing UFO Strangers in the Night as your favourite album... <laughs> It's been trumped by two albums the following week, which shows us um, shows us a the majesty of the music we played last week and listened to, but the fact that and b that music is all about mood, and c that if you don't go back to these albums for a long time, you just you just forget how damn good they really really were. What did surprise me was the gulf in the scores between Paranoid and the other two, one and a half marks which based on how close some of these other albums have been, that's quite a chasm. The theme of this week are debuts. Um, and I think really debuts, we, talk, we talked a bit about the debut albums that really were you know, the, the statement, the calling card from that band. We've each chosen one. I don't think necessarily our, necessarily our favourite debut album, but just one that we think was, a, was the defining moment for that band. Um, and and I think in each of these three cases for um, for rock music more generally, we've managed to um, get ever so slightly out of the seventies. Well, Mark hasn't, but but Steve and I have. Uh, so Mark has selected the debut album pronounced Leonard Skinnerd from uh, Leonard Skinnerd. Steve has uh, nominated Out of the Cellar, the debut full album by Rat. And uh, I thought I would try and be a bit modern and uh, choose an album that's uh, 27 years old right now uh, and come <laughs> into the 80s. And I've, uh, I've selected Rage Against the Machines' eponymous debut. <laughs>
this is going to be fun because I can't for the life of me work out why you've chosen your two and this is priceless. <laughs> we ought to get into it then. Right. So here we go then, folks. Debut albums. Um, first up is a man who just cannot leave the 70s alone and he's back with another one. Mark, how do you pronounce this? It's pronounced Leonard Skinnerd. Opening album sleeve notes. So it's uh, it's 1973, and it's Ronnie Van Zant, it's uh, Gary Rossington, Alan Collins as the three kind of linchpins uh, in the band. They've been around in one guise or another for years and years and years, playing under different names, and they changed their name uh, after getting quite a lot of flack uh, on the kind of the gig circuit that they were doing and they decided that they were going to call themselves after their high school uh pe teacher uh leonard skinner and they were uh they were discovered by a guy called al cooper who actually produced this album who suggested that they modify that to leonard skinnard so they became leonard skinnard and why did i choose this album i think i chose this album because i think uh this is a band that were always fatalistic. So uh, Van Zant always claimed, always said he would never, never live to see thirty, and he didn't. Um, and they were in a hurry to make it. They, the, the whole vibe about the band was that they wouldn't have long actually at the top when they got there, and if they got there, and they did get there. And and partly, I, partly, I've chosen this album because. I don't think they were ever this good again. Most bands go on and they grow. You know, they get through the difficult sophomore album and then they go on and they 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 produce increasingly mature, inc- increasingly sophisticated, more highly evolved music. And I think this is Skinner at their absolute best. There were other albums that had absolute colossal highlights. You know, Second Helping had Sweet Home Alabama. Um, so there, there, there were other albums that were that were good but they were never this good that's why i chose this album because they're not they were never as good as they are on this so how did you get on with it i found i found the whole thing absolutely fascinating i mean we like to pick our albums as you know pretty much when the dust settles on the previous week and you boys came up with the two you chosen tonight and i was aghast i mean i mean i know you i know you very well mark and um I hadn't seen this coming, to be honest. I hadn't seen this coming. And I um, I, I worked out that I think the first time I played this album was 1982, roughly. I mean, I can barely remember what I did last week, so give or take. Um, and I think the last time I played it was 1982. And it's just, it didn't mean anything to me at the time, didn't resonate at all, and therefore I've not picked it up since. So it's been a voyage of rediscovery coming through this with you. And I'm, um, I mean, I'm like you. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of, of elements of Southern rock. I love the Marshall Tucker Band. I'm sure you do. You know, and I like stuff like Tom Petty. I like Bob Seger. I like, you know, more current stuff you know, later than this anyway, like the Black so, Crows and um, things like that. I've, um, I've been listening to. You think there's a massive butt coming up, but there isn't. More I, of I, this I do really like this, album. but. More recently. I need to listen um, to it a hell of a lot so more to get back into I remember it we had a, What I would say is, we had a and you're going to come, we'll talk to um, you about book ended by two absolute classic uh, tracks. A, a sad, a sad 90s of, where we got our moniker Obviously, really good musicianship in between, where we, I just find it... Uh, get together all too I don't know. I don't know, Rich. And play music uh, face-to-face with each other, to each other. 
We're obviously now in these periods of lockdown doing it virtually, uh, but far more frequently. Um, and um, I, um, I, I think I was, I think I was playing um, always somewhere by the Scorpions. Um, but I, um, I'd, I'd found out um, just and this is a few years, many quite a few years ago actually, wasn't it? I think. And I'd found out that um, it, it, it's uncanny resemblance to Simple Man by by Lynn Skinner, uh, and um, and so so sort of over these last few years, I mean, with you know, Tuesday's Gone covered by Metallica as well. I think that I mean that's so I, I know this album apart from things like you know Freebird, obviously, um, much more recently. Um, so you know. So, uh, so I mean, give me three steps. Well, I ain't the one. Um, uh, but this, had, yeah, the, the, these these last this last week was the first time I'd ever listened to this entire album in order, end to end. Um, and yeah, I, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to it. I, I I like the way it ebbs and flows. I think the. Um, I think the, the the order, particularly side one, um, is is just fantastic. So with I in the one, and then choose is gone, and then give me three steps, um, and then uh, what for, for a simple man after that. And so so it, it, it just I love that the particularly on, on on side one, um, side two I don't think is is, is quite as, as strong. Um, but yeah, I think I mean if, if we if we talk about I ain't the one, and and I think. I was, I was thinking about this with all three of these albums, not just that it's the debut album, but what does track one on a debut album say when this band has come up to your door and said, hello, we are, and present their calling card. Um, is, you know, is, and, and I think for me, um, track one, uh, uh, I ain't the one, is, it, it, it is them, it is absolutely them in a nutshell. Uh, I think whilst yeah, I mean things like Freebird, um, you know, oh, yeah, is a great big epic, um, and as you said, Mark, the, you know, songs like Sweet Home Alabama, everybody knows that. But in terms of a song that encapsulates all of the sort of the groove, the the the, the rhythm, the the sort of just the the personality of the band, tr- track one is 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 it. It's uh, I Ain't the One is a fantastic, fantastic song. It just throws back to what I said in our very first podcast when I introduced the very first album, which was Van Halen, and I said, how many bands do you know that have as a track, as a, as a career opener, an, an opening track on an open an, an album, such a defining moment? And I said Van Halen was running with the devil. And this is very much another of those, um, one of those moments. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a gargantuan track. What I, do, what I would like to know, because... I've read an awful lot about this so-called three-guitar army that they bang on about with Skinner. Now, that wasn't the case with this album, Mark. Was it, was it just Rossington and yeah. Collins? No, and Ed King. So right. they had the, the triple attack was kind of how they defined their, their sound. And, it, and it, it, it's actually how they managed to derive so much versatility because they all had very different but complementary styles as well. So they were able to slot in and you know, for the tracks that where they wanted Rossington's particular approach to the instrument, that worked. He stood, stepped back and let Alan Collins lead when that made sense. And then, um, you know, Ed King uh, would kind of step in 
I think he's only on uh, one or two tracks that King plays lead in on this album. But yeah, I ain't the one. It's just got that. It's got that fabulous, almost box step groove going on in the background. But there's so much personality in Ronnie Van Zant's vocal delivery, not just the singing. The way he articulates forms some of those lyrics as well. So it is, it's real kind of bluegrass, down-home rock and roll. And and I think you're right, Richard. I think, I think that track particularly encapsulates what the band were all about. But I think the, the other thing about this album that I've noticed over the last week more, I was slightly aware of it, but it, it came through loud and clear, yeah. is that so much of their so many of their songs so much of their lyrical content is about being away from home and trying to come back and you know being lonely on the road or and there there is that fatalism that shines through in the way in in van zandt's lyrics you know this kind of this sense of his own mortality uh, and that he's got a lot of living to do because he's got a very short time to do it in well the interesting thing about him is if you read all everything you read and you know you take a lot of it with a pinch of salt but he was quite, he was a he was a hard lover hard liver i mean he was um he, he enjoyed a fight enjoyed a beer and 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 he's managed to um articulate that with an awful lot of humor in his lyrics i mean the, the carrying on from you know with i ain't the one i mean people question whether it was autobiographical even you know about the fella who's determined to leave his lady because she's overdue or something but it's it's funny um it's got a bit of attitude and and I guess again from what I've read about Van Zant, he was he was an absolute perfectionist, a real sort of almost a slave driver, a real stickler for perfection. And he wouldn't have taken any chances with any of the lyrics or anything. And it was all really well calculated and you know run like clockwork. And you and you see, I mean, we'll go on to talk about the myth, you know, because I mean, so much of the stuff, as you say, was fatalistic. And you know, who knew it would turn out the way it did? But um, yeah, the, the the songwriting skills of the man were phenomenal. Yeah, I, I think also, you know, there's there's all of that personality. You know, we've just finished listening to um, Tuesday's Gone and um, we Give Me Three Steps coming up. But if you want the personality and the humour, I mean, Give Me Three Steps has got that in spades. Yeah. Um, but, you, you know, interesting, you talked about the, the sort of the, the, the perfection um, issue because the other thing about Linda Skinner was Van Zandt didn't allow any improvisation it was rehearsed to within an inch of its life. Yeah, um, it's funny because I Ain't the One just is, is such a superb slap in the face. And then, I don't know about you, but I just think it. this is where I've got issues with this album. Rich, you talk about its ebb and flow. I, I think of it more of a stall. I think Tuesday's Gone is kind of, it stalled the album as it started. And I know I know what a massive song it is. I know it's been, you know, covered galore. You've mentioned Metallica, been in films and all sorts. And very worthy rock stars, of, certainly of a sort of that southern rock feel, speak enormously highly and affectionately of it. But um, I don't know, it, it, it just seems they've just sort of missed a trick a little bit. You obviously love it. I guess you do. Yeah, I, 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 I like I like the, the balance on... on side one side side two of you know, before freebird not as you know enamored with um it was fascinating to hear about what mark said about it being rehearsed it doesn't it doesn't sound rehearsed if um, if they'd rehearsed it they could have cut a bit more of the freebirds guitar solo out frankly so i was wondering how much of it was actually just a um at this time um stories about life the way he sings them 
is really telling a story. You kind of think when people talk about the myths of whether things were autobiographical, whether they were, you know, sort of third person narrative, whatever it, it is. But actually, what song is not autobiographical? To I mean, you know, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that Wasp's Animal was pretty autobiographical. You know, even even if only to a little bit. But but the point is, all songs have to come from somewhere, don't they? So. I think inevitably there's there's a certain autobiography going on in this album. Yeah, definitely. Also, it, definitely. It, and it also doesn't matter quite how true those all those apocryphal tales or real tales they happen to be, because I mean all these stories. This is best part of fifty years ago, and all stories get bent and distilled and disseminated. And it, you know, what it just it just adds to the legend, doesn't it? it you know, it's all part of of what they are. You know, they're a southern rock band going out on the road doing this, doing that, doing the other much of which you wouldn't want to know about, or we probably would want to know about, but they won't tell you about. And it's just all part of the package, isn't it? And it just makes for um, for one really, really interesting story, which they put yeah. to music. And, and going back to, to the stall, or the ebb and flow, depending on who you are in this conversation, you know, I said, um, I can't remember what it, which track it was. Um, it was, it was about eruption. So, you know, another parallel. I said, if you remember in that very first podcast, I said, putting Eruption second on that album was a really brave move because what debut band, effectively, in a recording sense, what debut band puts an instrumental track as their second track, having opened with the track, you know, with with, with the opening track that Van Halen had? And I think the same is true here. They've gone, do you know what? It's a great song. We're going to put it in second. Van Zandt dictated the the running order of the tracks as well he must have had a reason because there were other tracks that would have flowed more naturally from I Ain't The One on this album, without a doubt. Yeah, this would have done. You know, give, give Me Three, three steps. steps. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But then it goes again, doesn't it? The, after, I mean, Give Me Three Steps is, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a good, fun track done at a super little tempo, a little bit too paced as well, giving you that indication as being chased by a gunman, which is really funny and, and really well done. You know, everything they do is it's executed perfectly, isn't it? And then we go again, we all, and then, well, I'll repeat myself, the spirit of repeating myself, we stall once more. And I, and it wasn't just me who thought that either, Mark, was it? Because I think the producer, no. what was the producer's name? He didn't, he didn't, all, did he? Tell the story. No. So, so uh, we'll come back to whether this is a stall or not in a minute, by the way, Steve Davis. <laughs> um, but, no, Al Cooper wasn't convinced by Simple Man, didn't think it should be on the album, didn't think it was strong enough. The band as a whole disagreed with him in quite a lively way to the point where Al Cooper, who, let's not forget, had also signed Leonard Skinner to uh, the Sounds of the South um, subdivision of MCA, sub-label of, M- of MCA. So he's signed them, given them their break, and he's come in to produce. He plays on the album. Hmm. He voices some concern about the strength of Simple Man as a song on this album and is promptly escorted from the studio by Ronnie Van Zant, put in his car and told to stay there until the band had finished recording the song. If that isn't a band who are absolutely convinced by the direction they want to take and the quality and strength of the the songs they've got, then I don't know what is. But see, for, for me, this is the perfect end to side one. Interestingly enough, in every album we've discussed over the last four weeks, every single album has had a beautiful moment in it. And I think this is it on this album. 
I think it was playing um, always somewhere by the Scorpions. But I I'd found out um, just and this is a few years, many quite a few years ago actually, wasn't it? I think. And I'd found out that um, it, it, it's uncanny resemblance to Simple Man by by Lynn Skinner. It's so coincidental not to be a rip off, um, but I actually prefer it always somewhere. It's got the same structure. It's just got bigger killer chorus, I think, basically. And I think, I mean, on, on this on this first side, I, 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 yeah, what was I think it's this is a, a more yeah, you know, I think it is a deeper track. But personally, I don't think I, I don't think it's quite as strong as the other three tracks on this first side. So you're you're in, you're in danger of falling into the narrative of the period because. <laughs> what I find with Skinner, with Skinner there are, I mean, we've talked about the storylines behind the songs, and and many of these storylines, you know, they should be proud to have put into song, and, and they make great songs, and they therefore they attach an awful lot of emotional importance um, to it, and and their fans, of course, doubtless share the significance of all the words, all the meanings, all the tunes they've kind of shared on the journey with them, um, and I get all that. But I just think you can overthink it, and ultimately you've got to ask yourself, you know, how good is the song? And it's kind of free bird without the final flourish. I don't know. It's um, it's 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 a it's a perfectly acceptable bit of work, but it's not. Skinhead fans make far more of it than than it merits. Do you know what? I, I, in all of that, the, the, I see what you're saying, and the one thing that I do agree with is that this has got a lot of parallels with Freebird in its structure. You know, the opening third of Freebird, definitely. But I, I just think it's a, I think it's a great song. And yes, it, it does build and it's layered and doesn't quite go into the histrionics that we get at the end of the album. But yeah, I, I take your point, actually, Steve. What I, what I would say about, before we go on aside too, is that because so many bands have covered tracks off this album and also we can hear so many tracks from a more modern era in tracks from this album... What I would say is imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, isn't it? And um, these boys obviously set a hell of a high benchmark that, you know, the rest of the rock world, you know, was quite quite happy copying or at least being influenced by. So that's an awful lot. And each in their turn, you, know, you can hear a lot of the Allman brothers in this. Yeah, I know you can. You can also hear a lot of fairground in this, and it really bothers me because it's um, – you can laugh all you like, but it's a brilliant – it's a brilliant bluesy feeling star, and and it's you think this is going somewhere, and it just winds up on a merry-go-round. It has got a bit of a merry-go-round tinkling. Yeah, this, piano. Is, this is things going on for anyone yeah. who's, who's not realised where we've reached in the album. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I'd agree with that. This is this is the this is the low point of of the album, without a doubt. This is just knockabout, you know, pissed on a piano stuff in it. Yeah, I'd, I'd say yeah. It, it, this is the the low point for me. I'm not, I'm not sure what they need the ragtime piano for. Um, but yeah, I, I yeah I'd agree with that. This is this is the this is the low point of of the album, without a doubt. And then interestingly, interestingly, it goes into um, we're going to come into Mississippi Kid in a minute. And you just and my first thought was when I listened to it is. Um, the amount of different instrumentation you think bloody hell there's seven of them in the band why do they need to bring in even more people to play instruments <laughs> it's just it's just an endless recruitment drive one thing i wondered when listening to mississippi kids was is there anything anyway i couldn't find anything out about dave lee roth being influenced by them dave's into his um 
is bluegrass a bit and and and, and that and I don't know I, I just it, I just sort of sort of a, a few parallels um, between uh, some what I heard in Mississippi Kid and uh, what what, what yeah. Dave what he wanted Van Halen to play every now and then so you should like it more Steve. Have you got a track that you compare to Mississippi Kid in your head? Because I have. Cinderella's Bad Seamstress Blues. <laughs> but without going into falling apart at the seams, which is where you want it to go. It just, it, it just, you're just waiting for, the, you're waiting for it to kick off and it never quite does. And it, it, that's almost what I'm saying about this whole album. It's just, you just think there's so much more to come. And um, on several of these tracks, that doesn't actually happen. And that's one of them. So this is, we are now listening to Mississippi Kid. And yes, it is. You're right. I, I hadn't even made that connection. Bad Seamstress Blues, definitely. I can, I can also hear, you can, I can hear Amy so, Ross singing this. But, you know, this, is, this is nearly Ice Cream Man, you know. It's, uh... And Van Zandt always, well, not always, but he, towards the end of his life, and we were quite near the end of his life at this point, but, you know, after they released this album, he did used to refer to himself as the Mississippi kid, didn't he? Although he had been born in Jacksonville, Florida. So interesting. He, he, he really did identify with, with the deep mm. South. And this is, you know, this is, this is kind of, you, this is almost the, it's almost deliverance and the, yeah, it's, you know, doing yeah. banjo. Isn't it? Well, it's, yeah. it's difficult to be too critical yeah. of a track that's got a mandolin and a harmonica in it, but it's, um, you know, and it's, there's much to like about it, but you just you're waiting for the big riff. You're just waiting for the bridge into something monstrous, and um, it just it's 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 lay. It's a stripped back track, and it stays stripped back, and it's that's it really. It, it, I don't know about whether you two got to this point. It, I've listened to this obviously several times over the last week, and I'm trying to think what a, a Leonard Skinner show would have been like at this point in their career. Because you're not going to be rocking the joint for an hour and a half based on this album, are you? It's it's a it's far more contemplative than than balls out well, rock and roll. Maybe they used to play, you know, the 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 same venues that the Blues Brothers did that played both kinds, country and western. I mean, they are they are. I think this is just a really interesting debut album because. None of their choices are predictable. No. None of their compositions are, are predictable. If you're, I mean, I always kind of go back to the record company. If you're the president of MCA sitting in New York or wherever MCA were based, and Al Cooper turns up with this album, you wouldn't know how do you market this? Because there's, it doesn't fall it naturally into any one single category. You know, we go. Freebird is 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 almost like the Joker in the pack. It does stand apart, doesn't it, in terms of composition? And everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's there's an American mm-hmm. audience here, isn't there? That we're you know uniquely British. We don't quite see it, and, but that deep South audience, it's out there, isn't it? But... Yes, and I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? That that they would have been they would have been touring yeah. fairly intensively in within a. 150 mile radius of of where they lived at this point I mean, obviously got massively big well, since um, but uh yeah it, second it, helping came out i mean only i mean this was released what january 74 and then i mean second helping was october 74 so i can presume that they had a ton of stuff in the yeah. can 
Yeah, but but as you as you boys know, you know where possible, I I do listen to the where it exists, the album that came before and the album that came afterwards as part of my weekly listening. And frankly, they would have benefited right. from waiting. Without a doubt, they would have benefited from waiting. Second helping has got I mean, it's got Sweet Home Alabama, which you'd buy the album just for that, ultimately. Um, but it's a very poor, very poor album. Although, again, looking at their set list, there's a song on Second Helping called Working for MCA Song. I listened to it, admittedly, I only listened to it once. And I was thinking as it was playing, I was thinking, God, what what a crock this is. 2011, there it was in this list. So is it just me that I'm not getting it, that I need to be exposed to that album a bit more? But uh, Second Helping, I think, is really patchy. Well, really I, I, patchy. what I've heard, they had about 14 or 15 tracks for this and um, obviously only put eight yeah. on it. So I would imagine, therefore, one or two certainly... Um, you know, rather than going in the bin, just went on album two. I'm sure we can think of a number of pairs of albums like that, can't we? We've talked before about if we did, uh, yeah. Metallica would have uh, kicked a couple of the weaker tracks off of Load and put the couple of the better ones off of Reload on. Um, this idea where a, a band writes a ton yeah. of material and thinks, oh, we can probably squeeze two albums out of this as opposed to being honest about the stuff that's good yeah. and the stuff that's crap. We've got poison whiskey going on. Yeah, this is what do we say about that? It's just, it, it, you know, they've they've recovered a bit, haven't they, from the the, the last couple? It's it's a it, it's a good song. Yeah. We've got poison whiskey going on. How, what do we think of that? Yeah, this is it's uh, it's just, it, it, you know, they've 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 recovered a bit, haven't they, from the the, the last yeah. couple? It's it's a it, yeah. it's a good song. I mean, why is, why are they talking about Johnny Walker Red Label and uh, not several other whiskies that uh, would, would have been a bit closer to home? I don't know. Well, what, what, yeah. What's interesting <laughs> is they're not just talking about Johnny Walker Red Label. They're talking apparently about the evils of Johnny Walker Red Label. Oh, oh, the uh, irony, given how pissed they were going up on stage most nights. So, you know, but, there you go. <laughs> and so finally we get to the swan song for the album, Freebird. Now, can I can I be contentious? I mean, I know that I'm not normally <laughs> contentious. You, you guys, usually fairly. I actually don't think this is a very good song. Wow, I think it's a very good song for about four minutes. Which four minutes? <laughs> the first four minutes. Two, th- two initial things from me. One, um, when I was listening to it again and uh, trying to properly listen to it again, I found myself in the same space as. Uh, the week before, where I was listening to Stairway to Heaven. And uh, again, this is one of those songs that has just been played so much. Um, it, I was thinking, oh, okay, I've got to, let me try and reevaluate this. I think it's a good song. I do think it's a good song, but it, it uh, personally, it is too long. I bought this with Sweet um, Alabama on the other side. There was a single yeah. released in the 80s, I think. And, and I, Freebird, I mean, it's still, it's still long. I think it's still about six minutes on that, that single, but it's better for it. I was interesting when he, when he said um, that these, um, these tracks were meticulously planned in the studio. Well, because this one doesn't sound like it. It sounded like the guitar solo ran away a yeah. bit, or, unless all three of them were try, wanted to have a go. <laughs> so, 
which is probably it. And that's not necessarily a bad it's thing. I mean, we, we, I'm sure we've all infused over guitar solos that run away from time to time, but they've got a they've got a bit feel right. And yes, you, 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 the, the implication is that this doesn't quite feel right or sit easily with you, Mark, as a as a as an end to a track. Uh, I, I think, like Richard, I bought this with Sweet Home Alabama on the B side, or it was double A side, I think, actually, wasn't it? And when I heard this at the age of 16, I thought it was amazing. I probably just about the same sort of time was getting into Zeppelin 4. And I thought Freebird was amazing. And I thought that guitar solo at the end was amazing. And it was on my turntable a lot. And I hear it occasionally on the radio. But over the last week, I think it sounds he's he's reaching with the with his voice. It's whiny, you know. It's uh, you're absolutely right. The guitar solo it, it goes on for millennia, and it's uh, I'm bored by the end of it. And I think it's an epic end to the album. And and I said it was a bad song. It's not a bad song, you know. It's obviously it's not a bad song, but I don't. I think it's overrated. I, think I, it's I, overrated. I, I really like it's it. Over- I, I, Maybe I should, maybe I maybe I'm blessed by not having bought the single and therefore I played it less than you boys. But I also think it's um, what I do think is that it's probably been overplayed. And I and I'll say it. It's almost like the elephant in the room. It's been overplayed because of the plane crash. And I just think, you know what I mean. I just think, and because of that, we everyone attaches so much symbolism to it to a song about being well free-spirited, a free bird, you know. We know it's a tribute to Dwayne Elman. I think you mentioned that earlier, Mark, who had died before. Um, And then, of course, Skinner themselves, or at least a few of them, um, become free birds when they die in the crash, including Van Zandt, of course. So there's a kind of significance that goes way beyond the structure of the song itself. There's so many metaphors in there, and that just perpetuates it, and it goes on and on and on, becomes this massive hit, and it's all wrapped up in a myth, in an enigma, and the whole shooting match and therefore it becomes huge it almost out it almost outpaces itself because of what happened mm-hmm. in you'll tell me when 1977 was the crash i don't know but i still love the track the, the point the track's got to now is, is it's now just starting to ramp up and the, the, the solos just started this bit of the song is absolutely phenomenal the, the slow start and then this ramp up into the beginning of the solo is absolutely brilliant they cut out the middle of the solo and then the ending is is fantastic so i i this song is still a high score for me, uh, 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 but it could have been even better. Stairway or Freebird? Stairway all night long, all day long. Yeah, Stairway. I mean, this is this is great. This is a great song, but Stairway's on another planet. So uh, let's get to highs and. Well, I don't think we. I don't think there's a, a lot of doubt. Uh, the answers I, I'm expecting to hear, but um, Steve, highlight. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm I am a big fan of Freebird, and it's. Um... But the one that really caught me by the crotch was um, was I ain't the one. It's just 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 a barnstormer. It's a it's a really really kind of exciting opener to an album. And um, yeah, that's that would be the one for me. And if there's it, I've got there's several kind of lowish points. Yeah, none of it. I'm not writing it off, but um, I don't quite see the point of things going on, and I really don't quite see the point of um tuesday's gone either <laughs> rich um, same conclusions actually yeah i think things going on you know, it doesn't start side two off well for me and i and the one is is the high point for me i think it's just it's a perfect track really really good 
But for me personally, Tuesday's Gone is is close behind Iron Or. Um, I, I I really really like that that song. You know, I put I put Tuesday's Gone on, on a par with Freebird. Okay. Well, I'm with you, boys. I, I could listen to I Ain't the One all day. It's just got a tremendous, as I say, box step groove. And yeah, it's just a perfect way for this band to open the debut album. And yeah, the, the sort of fairground, ragtime, saloon bar nonsense of you know things going on i'd agree with that as the low point as well so i think i think for the the first time we've we've all agreed on the same high and the same low you're listening to the enter sad men podcast we're talking loud okay so that was leonard skinner Duh. Uh, and uh, now we move on to the 80s and steve's choice for the cracking debut album um, and uh, it's uh, the debut album by Mr. Piercy's Rat Out of the Cellar. Stephen, over to you. Opening album sleeve notes. I make no apology. I adore Rat, and I always have done. But the curious thing about adoring Rat, or certainly in my case, is that I basically love them for what they did over about two and a half years. You know, they were a giant band in my mind. But if you actually think it through, they did two great albums preceded by a very good EP. And then they didn't even have the, have the courtesy to flatline after that. They just nosedive. Mark, you're in agreement, aren't you? I mean, the, so yeah. the EP in 83 was fantastic and a real good sign of things to come. Then we had Out of the Cellar, followed by the comparable Invasion of Your Privacy. Um, and at this point, this band was was gigantic. I'll tell you what, I'm going to start my out of the cellar story in um, at Donington Park in 1985. I think it was about 18 months after out of the cellar was released when me and Mr. Mark Norman went, well, my first Donington, your second one. And I was 20 years old and unbelievably excited about going to see um, my first festival. And I know having looked back and I'm sure you probably said it at the time, there was a bit of sort of almost consternation about the, um, the lineup that year because Donington's a uniquely British thing, isn't it? And they do like to champion their own, but there were only two British bands on that bill. Anyone who doesn't remember it, um, they were, and, and they weren't even, you know, dandruff shakers either, were they? They were Magnum and Marillion, who have got their own hardcore base of fans. I know that, I accept that, but I would imagine for those who wanted some real strictly denim and leather British rock, they didn't quite get it. And then there were the four American bands headlined by ZZ Top, who I think. Fair to say we're about the biggest band in the world at the time after Eliminator. Wouldn't be far wrong. Yeah. And then the other three American bands, of course, were Rats, Metallica and Bon Jovi in that order, second, third and fourth on. None of whom had really made it, but two of them clearly were going to become monstrous. And Rats were actually slightly ahead of them, I thought, at that time. Because if you think about it, Metallica hadn't done Master of Puppets, Bon Jovi hadn't done Slippery, but Rat had already done two albums and you know, were a darling of MTV. They just had it, didn't they? They just had the look. And I thought at that stage, it was the first time I'd seen them, obviously. And um, and I thought this band's just going to be amazing. And then they came on stage and I was just, I was in awe. I mean, it, it was a sunny day, Mark, wasn't it? I just, and I just think this is just Hollywood has come to Castle Donington, has come to East Midlands Airport. The Sunset Strip has arrived in my tawdry life. They just shone. Stephen Pierce's teeth shone. Everything about them shone. The pickups on the guitars, the cymbals. 
and they just went through a fact. I mean, what would that set have been? What, 40, 45 minutes? It wouldn't have been any more than that, would it? Because they were second on. They just had it. They had a swagger, sassiness. I think Stephen Piercy just sweared for 40 minutes, which was fine by me. I was fine with that. You know, they had a hole in the ozone's layer's worth of hairspray on them and could carry off spandex. They just looked, they just looked like rock gods. And obviously at that stage, I'd heard both the albums, thought they were brilliant. And that just renewed my love for this band who so very, very sadly, not tragically, just sadly, it just, they just didn't quite go on. So they left us with an EP and two great albums. Let's forget the back, the remainder of the catalogue. And the first of those was Out of the Cellar, which is, you know, by any measure, um, a titanic bit of work produced by Bo Hill, which was a massive gamble at the time. It was his big first production number because he didn't have any part to play um, in the EP the year before. But they just got it. They just got it right. I think MTV was a big player in rap because LA music at that stage, we didn't really have, I mean, Motley Crue were out and about, but there wasn't a lot of stuff coming off the Sunset Strip that was instantly made you think of, you know, this new hair metal phenomenon. And I think rap were almost pioneers in that department. And then they gave us Out of the Cellar, just 10 ginormous tracks, nothing complicated about it. It just rolls along twin guitars just it's everything about it is just perfection and um you know we're now listening well i've talked over unfortunately wanted man which is um the opening track and an absolute thump and we're now into you're in trouble and um i'm going to hand the mic over to mark norman to just absolutely support everything i've just said and more i think you would be hard pressed to find a better opening album than this I think that I think the three things that drove this album were the band's yeah. look. I think the it was dripping with Hollywood, yeah. with West Coast Sun. It had massive. It's got massive hooks in it, and they are just a band who they are pre implosion um, because they they imploded not long after Invasion came out, and they are in their pomp. They are swaggering yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> well, we we yeah we got round and round in our ears at the moment. I mean, because I I missed out on them entirely um, at, at the time. I mean, I must have heard them in on the radio or metal discos and nightclubs I went to at the time. Um, but they it was only really when I got to know you two guys um, that, that that I I really started to you know listen and understand uh, rap and i mean round and round I and mean, it's still it's still my favorite track of theirs um and it was probably the first rap track that mark played me uh, and it's one of those um one of those tracks that instantly traps transports me back to haycroft road where mark and i used to have house you know we used to live houses one apart and that's where where he and I met, and then I met you, Steve. This, to me, is Rat's calling card, not Wanted Man. We talk about Leonard Skinner and, and um, you know, the, 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 um, I, I ain't the one. I, th- I think I think Wanted Man is a fairly good, you know, we're Rat, hello, pleased to meet you. Here's the first track off of our new album. This, in terms of the hook, in terms of his singing, in terms of how the two guitars interplay, um, I think, you know, Crosby Martini, what... One thing about rap was their the, the interplay between their, their them both doing rhythm guitar at, at the same time and, and, and their chords. 
And so, I, yeah, I, I think I think for you know those reasons amongst others that 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 that's why round and round is is for me the calling card off of off of this album and, and remains my my favourite rap track. Mm, it's interesting. They are they, 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 they're certainly very evocative. They, there's something about this kind of music that transports me somewhere so much with, with so much more clarity than other rock music. It's just something about the area. Maybe it's where it all started. I guess the early mid '80s is just kind of where it happened for me. And um, you know, that day at Donington is sort of, you know, etched in my memory. I mean, personally, if I was doing a calling card, it would be You're in Love off the next album, which is, you know, just how it is. But not that there's anything weak off this. It's a fantastic album as we now go through. <laughs> and I've just been talking about in, in Your Direction and the opening to In Your Direction. It just, I just got so re-excited when I played it last week for the first time. And I've just forgotten what an astonishing opening to a track that really is um but again it's 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 the drive it's that rhythm section it's the way they um it's the way it works together you know it, yes it's brash and it's and guitar driven it's very melodic full of some serious serious top gun riffs with a kind of crossover appeal but then we shouldn't be surprised because these were good musicians and we're not talking motley crew here. these are these were good musicians we're back to motley again, know, aren't we? <laughs> They're a little bit of a punch bag, which is a shame because we know full well that when we get round to sort of too fast for love or shout at the devil, we're gonna we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be pumping the air with the best of them, aren't they? They're guaranteed in the Hall of Fame. Those two, yeah. probably one or two others. The other thing about about this album and, and their music is they've got they've got two guitars. There's actually air between the it, air, there's air in the songs. There's gaps. You know, there's a thing around around here. A good song is is actually all about the. The spaces you leave and the, the, the things you leave out, not everything you throw in. And, and I think you know yeah, the, the, the way they um, the guitars work together, the, the guitars work with the vocals, um, the drums and bass are, are just there as a are just there as a as a foundation, aren't they? As a, as a backline, um, it's very it's all about the, the guitars and uh, Stephen Pierce's voice and, and how they they all work together. So very very well written songs. Well, and, and to be fair, that shouldn't be a huge surprise because um, there's nothing fly by night about this. Piercy was Piercy was. Um, do, do you know, by the way, Stephen Pierce is 63 now. How did that? How did that happen? <laughs> that wasn't supposed to happen. He can't, he can't be more than. He can't no. be older than 25. How dare he? I can't imagine him as 63. It just seems that that the world has gone wrong somewhere. So he was what? He he was born in um, so it's 56. He was, he was oh, 28 when uh, they recorded this album. But interestingly, he, he um, I mean, he formed his first band 11 years before this. They mm. became Mickey Rat. Um, he had this friendship with Robin Crosby, the late, great Robin Crosby, one of the two guitarists that Rich is talking about. And then, you know, Warren Martini might only have been a kid when he turned up. I think he was about 20. Um, but he came on the recommendation of Jakey Lee. So... You know, I mean, that's pretty high praise. Lee had been with Piercy before in a, in a previous band. Then came Crucier and Blotzer. So these these were talented boys, and you know, throw them together, stick some makeup on them, and some spandex, a nice picture of a girl on the front cover, MTV for company, and um, hey presto! It's fair to say, isn't it, that that some of the boys had were, were more gifted in the looks than <laughs> what in this band? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Stephen Piercy, who I would argue is the a beautiful at this point in makeup. I'm not, you know, just make this clear. Yeah, he he carried that look really well. I mean, I wanted to be Stephen yeah. Piercy for a long, long time. You've got you've got this kind of blonde bomber, six foot 
28. Yeah. Uh, Robin Crosby, who just dominated the stage. And yeah, he looked chunky in his, in, in, in the kind of the silk and the spandex, but he carried it off. Warren DiMartini was a good looking boy, particularly when he was, um, when he was, uh, sprinkling dandruff everywhere. Then you've got the slightly tubby Bobby Blotzer, <laughs> uh, on drums, who, who never looked particularly good in lipstick. But then I think to cap it all off, Juan Crucier, who had joined Rat having played on Dokken's debut album uh, and decided that Rat offered a much better, much better future for him than Dokken did, which I think he was right. Oh, my God, if there was ever a man who shouldn't have been put in makeup, it's Juan Crucier. Uh, I mean, God bless him. He was he, he was game. We'll give him yeah. that. But he never quite carried it. Yeah, he gave it a go. Yeah, he gave it a go. A fair play to him. Well, he, he had he a had a choice, didn't um, he? Peer pressure was quite intense there, wasn't it? I mean, if the other four were going to go for it, he, yeah. he, he couldn't exactly sit sit there and not do it. So, um, but I think I think you know I think Juan, God bless him, will will look at the covers of these first two albums, uh, and he's probably thinking himself, "What was I thinking?" Yeah, we can think of a few. We yeah. can think of a few bands like that. Remember when Y and T went through that kind of, you know? Oh my God! Yeah, that didn't work. So talking about great albums, great tracks, we've just been listening to uh, She Wants Money, which I think I completely under under kind of acknowledged and 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 um, valued uh, sort of the first time around. It's it's only been in the last sort of um, last couple of years where I've heard that track, and and particularly this last week actually, where you're listening to it forensically, and you just think, oh god, that's a track and a half as well. Yeah, it, it absolutely was, and of course um, um, we've just finished side one, which featured two of the band's three singles the massive round and round and wanted man and the third single off the album but in no way third in terms of quality is kicks off side two which is what we're listening to which is lack of communication which is beautifully mean and um again it just goes along at a right beautiful pace as um they just got everything sounding just so on this album good riff on communication um i haven't quite worked it out time signature wise but um they're playing some Combinations of some four fours and three fours, which would uh, bore the hell out of Mark. I know when I'm talking about it, but yeah. So the, the if you look at the, the adjustments, so yeah, yeah, they, it's a uh, yeah. I like I like this song, I like it a lot. But don't you think this was an odd choice for the third single, "Back for More"? Yeah, but of course, "Back for More." But, but would it not been a single off the EP before it? I don't know. It was on the EP, wasn't it originally? Was it yeah. released? I don't think it was, was it? I'm not sure. But yeah, no, very much so. Yeah. I, I remember when I bought my first house, I put this track as the, the greeting on my answer phone. And you must have rung me, Steve, yeah. at some point and got this. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. They were talented boys, yeah. I'm st- Sorry, I'm still reeling from the fact that Stephen Pierce is 63. I'm, I'm still not quite come to terms with that yet. But, um, you know, I need to. I need to adjust. He never wanted to be a rock star. He, was, um, he wanted to be... Um, uh, fast cars. He was into. He wanted yeah. to be a driver, a racing driver. Yeah. He had an accident yeah. and um, wound up in hospital. Picked up a guitar. Completely broken when he uh, had the mm. accident. Um, he was in hospital for, for yeah. ages. Yeah, six months, I think. Um, yeah. To go back to the makeup again, I think the makeup masked a lot of kind of physical imperfections. I'm sure, but I think it, what it also did was it masked their talent. Because, as you say, Steve, these are talented musicians. These aren't bubblegum, throwaway, I've learned five chords and I'm going to start a band musicians. These are talented, talented boys. Yeah. What, hindered, hindered, do you think, by the look they had or not? 
I think hindered in terms of appreciation, musical appreciation, not obviously not commercially, it made them, didn't mm. it? I mean, they made millions. I think people were more inclined to kind of disregard them as just this kind of pop rock thing that had come out of the West Coast. Yeah, it was all a bit bubblegum. It was all a bit throwaway. It was all a bit McDonald's. You know, fast fast music served up hot mm. and quick. And, and, you know, sort of almost like a Chinese meal, you know, you, you know, as soon as you finished it, you could eat another one. It, it was disposable, I think, to a lot of people. But actually, you listen to these compositions and these songs and the, uh, you know, the lyrics of what the lyrics are, they fit the songs. Mm-hmm. So by my definition, they're great lyrics. They don't have to be particularly deep or, or affect social change to be, to be, you know, um, to be appreciated. So, yeah, I think the makeup, I think the makeup um, hid a lot of talent of the talent from from critics who were very quick to write yeah. them off. I like uh, Richard. I, I like your smirk there, Richard, when he says that lyrics don't have to be deep and meaningful, given the juxtaposition that's about to come up. I wasn't smirking for that reason, but it will in a minute. Uh, Jesus, yeah. I was thinking back to last week, actually, and you know where you said that back at the beginning of this. Um, this podcast around was it the company that Black Sabbath was keeping that, that that affected their scores? But we talked quite a lot last time about Sabbath's lyrics, but they're positively Shakespeare compared to uh, what's on Out of the Cellar, aren't they? <laughs> but but are we? Is it because we're in the early eighties and it's you know and it, and it's crew and it's poison and it's rat and it, and and actually. This is what they're they're writing about, and we want to live this lifestyle, and and, and it's isn't it wonderful? I mean, they love their lifestyle. I know you're talking about you know how they were. Could they have been so much bigger and better had they you know gone played it straight almost? But they loved the image, and they they felt very LA. They felt very Sunset Strip, and they milked that. And Piercy, you hear you read interviews with Piercy, and he's not. I, I, he's, well, he's got plenty of regrets, and I'll come on to those in a minute when I start getting tearful. The album plays out. <laughs> But um, in terms of his own, you know, rock life, he's um, he's thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, played with some great people. Yeah, I mean, he just wanted to be the the story he recounts of when he when he was at the the Whiskey a Go Go and he met Dave Lee Roth and he was invited into the um, dressing room and he was talking about at Vox amps with Eddie Van Halen and he was just oh my god, this is amazing. Yeah, absolutely, starstruck kid. Yeah, although not a kid, clearly. But um, yeah, 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 yeah. Very much. He, he felt. He felt. He felt at one in that sort of um, Hollywood musical setup. Certainly. Yeah. But what? But what's hilarious is that Stephen Pearcey and, and Eddie Van Halen lived a walk up the road from each other up in up in the Hollywood Hills, and and Eddie Van Halen would come round to get away from his wife and just sit and do vodka with Stephen Pearcey. You know, it's just a bolt hole, you know. It's just kind of music, rock star life that they led. But there was Eddie Van Halen chained to his house. You know? <laughs> and just to go back to the lyrics, I, I, you're absolutely right. Of course you are, Richard, you know. But equally, Stephen Piercy is not purporting to write about war and the occult. Uh, <laughs> you know, Stephen Piercy is writing about getting his end away. And, you know... So I don't think he's trying to be Shakespeare, whereas arguably Geezer was trying to convey something more complex in his lyrics. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid Black Sabbath gave up the moral high ground on, on lyric writing when they came up with a song called Fairies Wear Boots. Sorry, I, I, I disagree there because, again, the gentleman concerned in writing those lyrics was just writing about his life <laughs> and what he saw. Yeah, touche. <laughs> yeah, well, put it this way, I'd rather have been seeing what Stephen Piercy was seeing. This was the life you wanted to lead, wasn't it? Sunset Strip. Oh, massively! When I when I when I clapped eyes when I clapped eyes on Rat at Donington, I just thought that I want to be him, them, any of them. I, I'll I'll be a roadie. I don't care. I'll I'll just get round the back somehow and speak to them. And you know, I just want to be that. That's for me. I think I think from what Steve's saying, it's the same for him. There at this time of my life, there is this coalescence and this perfect storm that happened, which was glam metal, glam rock, and these guys epitomised everything that as a shallow 20 year old i aspired to you know i i had no other ambition than to enjoy rock music have a drink and get laid and and those three things were very much in sync with mr piercy yeah yeah he had the same thought patterns true enough i mean he may have been eight years older than me but we were very much on the same page <laughs> him and me i read i read a section of his biography and, and uh, the, 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 it seems the first, the first, I don't know how many tens of pages, uh, him describing how a doctor actually told him that uh, he had a sex addiction. It's the opening of the book, isn't it? I mean, I have to say that the, um, the I, I mean, I read the, the whole of that, of his biography, autobiography. And um, I mean, you know, it, it, it paints actually by contrast to the music that you're listening to at the moment, it paints a, a, a very bleak picture you know, from the highs of, of being signed and making this album an invasion, but then the spiral into drug abuse, the infighting in the band, the chasms and schisms that uh, were created between, you know, I mean, Piercy and Bobby Blotzer were at the point where they couldn't stand the sight of each other. You know, they'd, they'd arrive at the venue separately. Um, they could barely bring themselves to talk to each other. And, you know, it's no wonder that you can hear that in uh, in in the later albums. And you know, they reformed, didn't they? Um, back in the early part of this twice. decade, early twenty tens, yeah. twice. Couldn't yeah, you know, they couldn't make it work. And at the end of it, Bobby Blotzer said, "Nobody is waiting for another Rat mm. album." And he's absolutely yeah, that's right. true. He's absolutely right. Well, I mean, no one was waiting for another Rat album after Dancing Undercover, to be honest. But um, you know, I'm being a little bit glib. I mean, there were some highs on the three albums after Invasion, but just not very many. More were lows they? than highs, really. I can't think of a single high off. Um, no, I was thinking more of um, Detonator, really, with sort of um, Love and Use a Dirty Job was good. Top Secret. Well, Shame, Shame, Shame was yeah, um, probably more than most, but um, unfortunately, we're now coming to um, the end of I'm Insane, which is um, initially was the track I loved first when I first heard this album, and that means we're coming into Scene of the Crime, which is you know, that moment at the start of um, oh, the ACDC for those about to rock when they just break into it and you yeah. start to get all emotional, don't you? And teary that it's all coming to an end, and I'm like that with the start of Scene of the Crime because I just think of what could have been with this band. I think, A, Pierce's age, that makes me sad anyway. But And I also think of, you know, Robin Crosby. I've got one of his plectrons. That's how much I love that man. He chucked it out when we went to see them at the Odeon, didn't he, in um, 86. And I've got one of his picks. And he died too young. And he was, you know, he was the engine room of this band and talented boy and died too young. 
And then, as you mentioned, Mark, all the bust-ups and the acrimony and the lawsuits, you know, they even have battles over the trademark, which is, you know, just ludicrous. And that they, they promised so much and ultimately delivered so little. And I love them to bits. And um, I just wish they'd done more and better stuff. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Although they they had a monster album following this. Absolute monster. You know, Invasion, arguably, I would say, is a, is a better album than this one. Yeah, I echo that. I absolutely echo that. Um, I mean, although you'd be hard-pressed to, you know, just limit yourself to picking 10 if you were doing a compilation from the two from the two albums. You know, it's, um, it's hard to find yep. too many weak spots. You know, I, I absolutely love this band to bits. And, you know, they bring back so many happy memories. And it's, choosing this album was a no-brainer for me. Um, it certainly would have come up at some point. You know, it's taken me back to a happy place over the last week, and it will be in the Hall of Fame, whatever you say. Well, let's let um, let's let the objective person in the room sum up, because obviously we've just been gushing, prepubescent, hormone-driven drivel for the last half an hour. So, Richard, come on, put this band into perspective. I think seeing the crimes, it, it's a good ending. It's a good solid ending. It's not an epic, but it's a good right. Okay, it's the end of the first album. See you next time. Uh, so, yeah, I quite, quite like this. I've, I've really enjoyed listening to it. Really, really enjoyed listening to this album. A, a lot out of my morning bike rides, I've, I've had it on. And, yeah, I, I, for me, it's a good album. It's, good, it's a good album. I, mean, I would say, for me, I'm Insane is the point that it, it isn't so, so good. Um, as I said, Round and Round for me is a high point. The rest of the album, Lack of Communication, I really like. Morning After, obviously. It, it's good. It's solid. Um, it, it deserves to be up, up there with all of the other albums that, that we've considered. And I'll keep listening to it. Praise enough. Praise enough. Mark, give us, give us your highs and lows. I, I think it's, it's hard to look past round and round, really, isn't it? I, I could be different for the sake of being different and say Scene of the Crime is, is actually my favourite. And and on another day, it probably would be, because I think the two are very close. Yeah, I, I love the groove of Scene of the Crime, but I think in the end, that kind of dripping hook line off round and round just brings you back. And I think I'd probably agree with Richard, actually. I think I'm Insane is probably my least favourite on the album, but it's another Led Zeppelin moment. It's it's the not-so-highlight. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm surprised that I'm, I'm insane is an absolute highlight for me. I want to do this the, the other way around so that we finish on the high. So my low, which there isn't, but lowish, would be She Wants Money. But I'm not going to finish on a low. I'm going to finish on a high because that's where rap deserved to be. Um, and I'll say um, In Your Direction alongside Round and Round. And with immaculate timing, there goes Rat out of the cellar into the Hall of Fame. I thank you. This is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Okay, so uh, we have done Leonard Skinner, pronounced Leonard Skinner, and we have now done Out of the Cellar by Hollywood Darlings Rat. Uh, we bored Richard stupid by gushing all over it, Steve and I. However, it is time for Richard's Revenge. Because fast-forwarding into 1992... We are now going to debate and discuss and probably disagree on many things about the phenomena that is Rage Against the Machine. Opening album sleeve notes. 
So this was your choice, Richard. And I, I, in full disclosure, when you announced that this was the album that you were going to be bringing to the party this week, uh, I think I, I replied by saying, I warn you now, I don't like Range Against the Machine. And you said to me, um, well, I trust you will keep an open mind. And all I can tell you is I have. But now I'm going to hand over to you. <laughs> Thank you. When, when we came up with this idea of um, the, these debut albums that that were the calling card that broke the mould, two thoughts I had were, one, I'm going to pick something a bit newer. Again, newer, ha, 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 <laughs> nearly 30 blooming years. And I'm, I, I want to choose something in terms of that 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 really crossed boundaries. And I looked at a number of um, different albums, number of different bands. I thought about this one, and then I keep com- kept coming back to this one and back to this one, back to this one. So we talk about calling cards as opposed to just, you know, someone knocking pleasantly on your door and, and handing you their calling cards. Th- th- these guys kick the fucking thing down. Uh, I'll, I'll come in a minute to why I, why I love this band as, as, as well as this album. The, but this is a, this is an album they've they've they're never never better but never going to get anywhere close to. It is an album that if the Rage Against the Machine hadn't existed and had released it in two thousand and three, released it in two thousand and thirteen, released it this year in this style with this stuff, it w- it would still have made everyone go, "What the fuck." That was the prime reason I, I, I chose this. When I heard this from, for the first time, it, it, it blew me away and, and, and still does. It's been a long time since I've listened to this end to end. And side one is just mental, absolutely mental. A few, a few facts for you. The album was released in November the 3rd, 1992. It happened to be the same day that Bill Clinton was announced as president-elect. And think about everything that they sing about, which I'm sure we'll go into, and how many presidents have been since then. And here we are in 2020. They've just reformed. Uh, they were about to go on tour until until Corona hit. Um, I can't wait to hear Zach De La Rocha's speeches in between the tracks uh, in their live shows as and when they, they do do them. Let me shut up there for, for now and hand it over to you guys. Well, I was privately chucked chucked bits when you pick this rich not because it's a favorite album of mine because it isn't but i didn't see it coming that that was the surprise i mean we you know three episodes of this and we've you know barely got into the 1980s i know i've advanced it fractionally this evening with rat but we've certainly never been anywhere near the 90s but no reason why we couldn't we set the parameters they were age related and you know 70s and 95 set falls neatly within that but it's the musical challenge that I love because it is so patently different to anything we've done before and there aren't going to be too many albums like this that we'll do again and that's what I love about it. And it's a very politically... I mean, you'll talk about the politics of it in a minute. It's an, it's an enormously politically driven beast and I'm now looking at it... I'm listening to it as a 54-year-old man mortgaged to the eyeballs with three kids, a house in the New Forest and very little revolutionary intent within me. So I'm asking myself, do I enjoy it for the messages that's being sent by Zach de la Rocha? Well, you know, I like to think I know right from wrong and I like to think I can, you know, call out oppression when I hear it. And But am I a, a, a Maoist, Leninist? No, I'm not. So therefore, 
do I want to listen to an unrelenting 52 minutes worth of messaging, which is what we're getting, isn't it? There's no respite from De La Roche. I don't know whether he writes the lyrics or not, but there's no respite from it whatsoever. So I've got to study it musically because ultimately that's what, you know, it's a combination of the two, of course it is. But musically, I think it's brilliant in so many different ways. And, uh, you know, I'll expand on that later as we go through it. Um, I've listened to this album 12 times this week. I've looked at all the lyrics. I have done quite a lot of research about the band's early days. I have watched documentaries about this band this week. While I've been mucking out horses in fact, I changed the lyrics to one of these. Some of those who work forces burn crosses, also burn crosses. Some of those who ride horses also burn crosses. It's, for me, it's everything Steve said. I, I, do you know what? A week in, 12 listens in, loads of research. I have no idea what I think about this album. I really have no idea. There are moments, I, I, I find it relentlessly repetitive and gratuitously angry, which I'm not in the mood for at 55, frankly. There are lots of it that's very difficult to to listen to. I think for, for somebody who is obviously very, very eloquent and very articulate and very morally centered, I think a lot of the power of the messaging in the lyrics is lost in some of the just in some of the invective. And I, I know that it's meant to be angry. I know it's meant to be reactionary and it's meant to be revolutionary and rebellious and any other word you can think of beginning with R. But for me, I'm with Steve. I think musically, it's it's a towering piece of work. Do I think it's relevant now? Actually, I think it's more relevant now than it was when it was released. Do I think it's been relevant in the interim between the release of this and what we're going through now, what we're seeing in America at the moment? No, I don't think it is. I, th- I think they became irrelevant very quickly. So I'm kind of split. I admire it in all sorts of ways. My life will not be poor if I never hear it again. That's That's kind of where I'm at. Which I didn't hate it, you know. I, I think the, I've tried really hard to to see it for what it is, and I can see it for what it is, and I and I have a, a lot of respect actually for where they were politically, for what they were seeking to do in terms of changing social attitudes and affecting social change. Get all of that, and and completely whether or not I agree with them all the time. Fill your boots. That's what democracy is all about, you know. But but I think that that. Almost the worst insult I can give it is that I'm ambivalent about quite a lot of it as well. I like some of it. I, I can see musical merit in a lot of it. Lyrically, it doesn't speak to me, but then it was never supposed to. It was never supposed to be for me. They didn't write this album for me. So on that basis, I have to say it's an amazing piece of work. Do I like it? Not much. I don't hate it, but I don't like it. Does that? I mean, is that objective? I don't know. I've, I've lost all sense of objectivity. You know, we've, we've just gone through you two and your absolute love affair for rats. Of course, this isn't objective. This is this is about what we're feeling about these these songs. I, th- I think what you've said is absolutely right and fair. I mean, I would just listen to you know, "Killing in the Name of" and uh, the various expletives. Um, I, mean, I, I remember what was I? When I was twenty. I was twenty-seven when this came out. Uh, I remember jumping up and down, you know, to "Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me," and absolutely loving it. Um, at the time that I was, I was uh, shouting it. I didn't actually know what the rest of the song meant. <laughs> Why do I love them fundamentally as a band? It is the musicianship of uh, of Tom Morello and, and Tim Comerford and, and Brad Wilk. What's making me jump up and down to this album? Um, and personally, it, it's it's not uh, Zach's 
messages, Rage Against the Machine realized that actually a studio environment wasn't working for them. So they actually built a stage and they recorded the album playing to some people they'd invited in to. So, so that what you hear in the album, the energy and, and, that, and that, that, I mean, absolute punch in the face is, is because that, that's what they, they wanted to, to achieve. And I think, so for me, it's, it's that, it's the, the, the impact that impact that, that excites me about this album. And then, and then the, the three musicians, I, I, I think they're phenomenal. Brad Wilkes' influences, Bill Ward, Alex Van Halen, John Bonham, Neil Peart. Tim Comerford influences Gene Simmons' A Kiss, Geddy Lee of Rush, Steve Harris' Iron Maiden, and then Jaco Pastorius of Weather Report, Louis Johnson, who is a, a massive funk bassist who played on, for example, Michael Jackson's Thriller, and of course, and then and then Tom Morello. I mean, Tom. Uh, I, I think I think Tom is the most inventive guitarist since Eddie Van Halen. And, and for me, it, it's 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 the, the the music that these three people create together that is just absolutely phenomenal. And um, I, I mean, over the top of that, Zach's anger and message. Um, I don't necessarily agree with um, a lot of it. I get what he's what he's talking about. Um, but my goodness, he was pouring his heart out when he wrote and he sang these songs. And um, I think yeah, they give no quarter, absolutely no quarter in this album. Um, and that's why I love it so much. I get the, I get exactly what you're saying about the musicianship. I was thinking of um, the highest praise I could think of. Incidentally, before I come into the highest praise we could think of, we're just listening to the back end of Take the Power Back. And this is an abs- a beautiful illustration of where they use bridges to bring in something slightly different and they don't do it enough i don't think in these in this album but because because they're so musically so damn good and you can hear the depth of morello's guitar playing in in something like this but i love this track absolutely love this track to bits what i was saying about the three of them wilkes morello and comerford is that i was trying to write some notes and i thought the best way i could describe it is if they'd be just as they could play an earth wind and fire one minute sepulture the next they're that adaptable, they're that flexible with their machines. They really are. And it, it just works so well. There's so much inventiveness going on with what they're doing. Um, and as I say, I do wonder how much of it is drowned out by by the by the messaging. And um, but anyway, that's just my thought. I'll tell you where, where the confusion lies for me is that I listened to this 12 times. I didn't have to listen to this 12 times to, to reach a, an opinion about it. I listened to it 12 times because I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, as a musical, as a soundscape, it's really interesting. And there are some tracks on this album that that actually I really quite enjoyed. You know, it, it was I didn't, as I keep saying, I didn't hate the album. I'm not a big fan of, well, I say I'm not a big fan. I, I, I actively dislike most rap music. It's just not a, a, a genre that, that speaks to me. But but there's enough interesting stuff going on this album that I, I was quite happy to listen to it as often as I did. Will I pick it up again? Probably not. But that that doesn't actually detract from the fact that it's an amazing composition, front to back. You know, musically, it, it, it's an incredible piece of work. You can hear the musicianship. I just think, I think you're right, Steve. I think having having an angry man shouting all over the music doesn't help it. Yeah, you do look at it and you think, well... Of the people who bought this album, how many of them bought it for the music and how many of them are really genuinely interested, appreciative and understanding of of, of Zach Delaroche's lyrics? Because this is the other thing, is that he is 
an extraordinarily politically motivated man, very eloquent. And I, I have a, a lot of regard for people who have the courage of their convictions in the way that he does. I also think, having done a bit of research into the people and causes that he supported at the time, that that like a lot of very politically active people, he was also quite disingenuous. So he presents as facts things that he doesn't, he can't possibly know are facts. Uh, and uh, particularly in some of the uh, interludes between songs, where he's talking to the audience and explaining the motivation behind um, behind the the the, uh, the songs that he's written. And and there's one particular example, which actually I think is is a bonus track on the Spotify version of this, uh, which is the live version I think of Bomb Track. And he's talking about Leonard Peltier. Now he presents Leonard Peltier as an innocent man. Let's ignore the fact the courts have pr- pronounced him guilty because. You know, the courts get stuff wrong and Amnesty have already said that his case was unsafe. But the point is Zach de la Rocha doesn't know if he's guilty or not. And to present it, so that's why I have an issue with with music that is politically motivated. I think you have to be you have to be accurate and honest in the way you represent your causes. And I and I have an issue. I have a big issue with Zach de la Rocha in that. No, not that he gives a shit whether I have an issue with him or not. But but as a listener, the integrity of his messaging and his music is undermined by the fact that he is presenting as fact something he can't possibly. See, I knew this had happened. He does the same with um, he, he does the same with Shining Path as well. There are Peruvian. Let's not beat about the bush. There are terror groups who murder indiscriminately in their quest to overthrow the state in Peru. But I knew this had happened because we're not the target audience now. We are when Richard was twenty-seven or younger still. You know. We're, and we're now analysing it geopolitically and damping his messages yeah. every step of the way. It's not aimed at us at all. No, and it's not fair to do it, and it's not it's fair not. to judge it that way. It really isn't. Which is why I've said, as a piece of music, I think it's really interesting and accomplished. Lyrically, I don't buy yeah. into it. I buy into the mindset. I buy into the political motivation behind it, but I don't buy into the politics necessarily yeah. of it. But then... That's irrelevant. Yeah. And you're absolutely right, Steve. This, as I said, I think, you know, a, a little while ago, this is not an album that was written no. for me. So therefore, it's impossible for me to judge it in a way that yeah. is fair. And all you can do is you can look at the album sales and go, you know, a million flies can't be. But we have, and we, we have unfortunately just talked over um, Settle for Nothing, which is, again, what I was saying, Rich, earlier about that those lovely bridges in um, Take the Power Back. Settle for Nothing is another is another brilliantly constructed almost Nirvana-esque, um, and then you've got that wonderful Morello solo at the end, but punctuated with them, you know, with some serious brutality. And when they do that, those two tracks back-to-back, I just think it's um, it's outstanding. But then after a while, and I've worked out it's about track six, track seven, it just all gets a bit slightly more wearisome, and you're going to have to guide us through the back end of this album because it's. Um, I, th- I think I'm beginning to tire of it after um, Kashmir. Sorry, wake up. You saw, you heard that yeah. as well. See, side one is is relentless. Yeah, so, and then and then I think yeah, side two starts off well with know your enemy, and then wake up, and then it does. I think it lo- it loses a bit at the end. It, it rescues itself a little with freedom at the end. But f- for me, township rebellion and and fistful of steel, they're going through the motions a bit. I agree with you both around if Zach hadn't been so angry, if if it wasn't, if it was singing as opposed to rap. We're all agreed it would appear more or less on on the on the the music, but if it hadn't been this combination at this time, I think it, it is one of the most unique albums ever. Yeah, it's towering. It had to be that way. We're listening to the end of Bullet in the Head here, 
which is just an awesome piece of music. Absolutely awesome piece of music. This is a band that was very carefully manufactured. This was not as spontaneous as the music would suggest. If you are art directing a project, then it is very, very well planned. I think that's the thing for me is that they offer themselves up as this sort of spontaneous bundle of rage that erupts on this album. But actually, how much thought had gone into? I, I don't necessarily mean that as a, a as a as a criticism either. No, I think it was a it was a long planned protest. I mean, Tom Morello, we, we went up to Harvard and studied social sciences, and I mean, with the research that we do, we, everything we've got to read is take take got to be taken with a pinch of salt. But I mean, he, he did he did want to sort of create a political Led Zeppelin. So as in Led Zeppelin in terms of impact of a music along uh, on the world, but actually make a big political statement. You know, Tim Comerford is a, is a big conspiracy theorist who doubts the moon landings and, and stuff like that. The reason he says that they signed to Epic was because Epic would allow them complete creative control. So I think they all really wanted to do this and this was really well planned and they wanted to make this this absolute smack in the face protest up. Yeah, and and you know, and Zach Delaroche has, has has gone on record and said that, you know, Epic made them a lot of promises and they kept every single one of them. So, you know, creatively, artistically, the band had full control over what they were doing. And you know, and what isn't in doubt as well, and I think I think this is quite important in the Rage Against the Machine story is both Zach De La Rocha and Tom Morello, you know, came from, you know, mixed race backgrounds and and all of the intolerance and abuse and discrimination and prejudice that came with it. And, and there's quite a lot of documentary around about how their mothers, you know, they would come home from school having been roundly abused for their colour. Both mothers sat them down and said, you don't have to put up with this. You you can stand up for yourself and you can speak for yourself and you can you can make a, a stand that this is not acceptable. So I think like with most bands, particularly bands that have a message to promote, there's an awful lot of baggage here, there's an awful lot of trauma. Oh, it's cashmere. Oh, no, it's nice. Wake up. This is cashmere. It's the, it's the goddamn same, same riff. I think well, rap bands are famous for sampling and um, things like that, aren't they? So... Uh... This this is this is my favourite track, uh, and, and actually, Steve, I I don't necessarily agree with you about the back end of this being weaker. I prefer maybe because it's more there. There's more melody in it. I prefer the back end of this album. Um, that is interesting. Yeah, I prefer the Christmas number one bit of it. There was an interview with Tom Morello and Zach De La Rocha when they became re- reformed to play Download, and they were asked about you know 2009 and the manufactured number one to to keep. To keep the mighty Joe McEldry yeah, right. off the top of the charm. I don't know. There's something, isn't there something? I understand what they're doing. So they're, they're taking they're taking a, a, another machine and they're kind of derailing it, or or the movement that put them there, and all the money goes to you know good causes, whatever. But actually, <laughs> the, the polar op- the, the other side of this coin is they've just robbed a, a fairly talented young man of of. A number one spot that that's that surely that goes against everything that they stand well not everything clearly but it goes against the kind of equality that they stand for well or, or of course I you could you it. could turn that on its head and say well isn't that the anarchist in them you know it's just you just never saw that coming you know it was comp- so so shit on a 21 year old kid yeah 
it didn't come from them though did it it was it was a, a it was a, a some couple in london because they were fed up with simon cowell making a million every christmas was basically the the thing and uh, i don't know i i i i get the sense though they were probably a little bit embarrassed by it amazed that it actually happened they did some free gig didn't they to um profit with all the money going to charity to um do a thank you and, and make up for it I, I think given <laughs> given that they were whether you agree with it or not the stuff that they were speaking out about in terms of sort of racism and ethnic minorities and the police and Ku Klux Klan and everything else to include then Simon Cowell in their list of hated people was probably just you know not quite like what they formed the band for. <laughs> yeah, I love, this, I love this quote from Tom Morello when he said, um, "A little dose of anarchy for the Christmas holidays is good for the soul." And he, and he went on to say, "I think I think that people are just fed up with being represented every Christmas holiday, being spoon-fed some overblown sugary ballad that sits at the top of the chart." So you know, even how many years after it was originally, it's um, he, he, he's not lost he's not lost the desire to do something different. Well, they were they, they did a. Read the story. They did, they did a, a performance of it for Radio Five Live, and they promised Radio Five Live that they wouldn't do any fucks. But then they got to the end of it, and they couldn't resist. And Radio Five Live had to fade them out. <laughs> yeah, they're a difficult band to radio edit, aren't they? Well, you, frankly speaking, as a former BBC man, you've got to be out of your mind to have this band on your live <laughs> show. Out of your mind. Yeah, you know, frankly, I wouldn't let them anywhere near the studio. Didn't they? Um... You said they're coming back to perform again, Rich, because they fell apart quite spectacularly, didn't they, first time round? Yeah, so they just announced um, that they were doing a reunion tour um, and they were going to play, uh, as we speak, I think, um, gigs uh, in, in, in the US and, um, and, and the Americas, I think, and they were due to play the Reading Festival this year. So they've now shifted all of that till till next year. It would appear that Reformation is is holding strong. The three of us, you know, white, middle class, male, British, all had fairly easy lives, haven't we? Um, so the other thing is, it's, it's very difficult for us to properly connect into some of them. Yeah, but we, I mean, we still, we still could have done that from a distance back in the day. I mean, I was thinking about when I was when I was at school. You know, if I, if, if this had been around in 1981, say, when I was heading into the sixth form um, at my ever so middle class grammar school. You know, I'd have, I'd have absolutely latched onto these political leanings, and you know, you talk about them going to Reading next year. That, that, I mean, they're a band at that age. If I'd have been seventeen, eighteen, I'd, you'd have adored seeing this lot. Like, just think of being able to go and see them at a festival and, and be able to swear to your heart's content with the band. You know, sort of. I mean, it was just how good would that have been? And you can imagine at Reading, eighty thousand people. A lot of people talk about you know the similarities in terms of their political motivations to the similarities between Rage and Woody Guthrie. So, the, you know, Woody Guthrie, the grandfather of American protest songs. And I, was saying, I can't remember who it is now, but somebody, somebody said the difference between Woody Guthrie and Rage Against the Machine is Woody Guthrie will call you out for it. Rage, machine, Rage Against the Machine will come and kill you for it. That is the difference, isn't it? They are, they, they, you, you, you wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of these boys. What I also like is that there's always the little bit of, um, even though we're talking about this, this edginess to them and this anger, which is inherent in everything they do. What a lovely story I write. I read about something that Tom Morello said when they were in the throes of their first split up. He said, we were arguing even over the colours of our T-shirts. 
So you think for all the worthiness and sincerity, they can still be lovey prima donnas like the rest of us, like every other rock band, you know, when it comes down to it. Well, you know what? I'll tell you this much, boys. They're no rat. <laughs> no, it's, it's been three very different albums, isn't it? So let, let's let's get on to the, the highs and the lows then. Which is what we used to. Okay, well, it's all about context. So if I'm listening to this album and marking it on behalf of the angry youth of the world, then, you know, it, the whole thing is going to score highly and it will do track by track. Because this was music which you know which offended people and and you know irritated people and to that end it's a you know it's a high class piece of work so but I've got to mark it as I'm listening to it now while trying to be honest about you know everything I like and dislike about this album and Killing in the Name is an astonishing track I love Take the Power Back and I'll give you any of the last three I'll take Township Rebellion is probably the weakest well I, I would agree with you on the weakest Township Rebellion. Uh... Uh, as much because I think it's bloody naive, actually. I think it's, re- it's a really lyrically, it's very naive. But also uh, musically, I'm not a big fan of it. I think it's tough to say I have a favourite because I'm not sure that that's <laughs> how I would describe it. But that I think the I enjoyed the back end of this album. I, I I enjoyed the process of listening to this, and I became quite fond of some of the the, the tracks on the album. So I think the one of which I am most fond. Is wake up. Did did that kind of sidestep elegantly <laughs> yeah. enough? Township Rebellion, I think, is, for me, is the um, weakest. Uh, yeah, it, and it, I can't get into it. it. Even with some of the others, even with his anger, I can still sing along and jump up and down, and it and it gets my emotions going. But that that one, that not for me. Plus, also for me, mu- musically, it gels the least of the other stuff on 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 the album. That 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 whole first side is just. Um, it's just a, a, amazing for me. So, I mean, it's hard, hard to choose between uh, Bomb Track, Killing in the Name. Well, I don't know, probably uh, maybe sneaking onto the side to Know Your Enemy because I used to play it and still love it. For me, still an album, as I was playing this, it was fascinating that how it um, still... <laughs> I was, I was, I've been out on my bike um, and I've been uh, doing my rowing this week and... Um, I posted my fastest times on both with this album in my ears. <laughs> so it, 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 it still moves me even after 27 years. Well, I think that has been a fascinating discussion. I, I think for all the gushing um, for over Rat, which I thoroughly enjoyed, I think I've enjoyed the conversation about Rage in a slightly different way it's been a, it's been a really interesting and probably because i am so conflicted about it that i that there's so much to admire but i'm wildly conscious of the fact that it, it was an album that was never intended for my ears well that's what yeah. I, I, yeah, I feel challenged you've challenged us richard and that's um and that's great and and it's been a really I'd say really fascinating process and a fascinating discussion so so as a juxtaposition we're doing women in rock next week, aren't we? Yes. When you suggested it, Mark, it was it had already gone through my mind in terms of doing something again a bit different. It, it, it's all very easy when we know when we're talking about our favourite albums and our common ground that there's a hell of a lot we we can agree on. But just as, as we've just done, I think to, to start to go into other areas, um, it, it, it makes our discussions much much more interesting. 
You're listening to the Enter Sad Men podcast. We're talking loud. So we've spent a lot of time talking about the albums. Uh, we have a contractual obligation between the three of us to score them. So it's time to reveal how all of these albums did. And gents, we're going to start where we started for the show. We're going to start with Leonard Skinner. So looking at your scores, the album, Steve, you scored the album as a seven, dead on seven. I scored the album as a 7.325 and uh, Richard, you scored it as a 7.375. So we have a pretty similar view of the album. Steve's not so keen is the is the kind of takeaway from that, isn't it? Yeah, pretty close scores, aren't they? Yeah. And it's interesting given that you brought this album into the discussion i scored marginally yeah i mean hardly hardly any difference is it but but when we're, we're within a nat's whisker i'm just looking down some of the track scores as well i ain't the one was uh clearly a, a favorite it pretty yeah, and it it pipped freebird as our as our as our, as a our consistent favorite of the whole album we agreed didn't we on on the weakest as well things going on and our scores you know reflect that yeah, we, we, we talk, don't we, about the fact that in order to cement your place in, in the Hall of Fame, the, these albums that we're discussing every week, uh, I think, Steve, you said you, you, you're looking at a solid sort of high seven, really, you know, 7.789, whatever, to, to really be assured of a place. But, of course, the really interesting thing is a seven is is an above average album whichever way you look at it and i'm pretty sure we will talk about some albums in the future that score well below that and probably well below well below or not maybe not well below but below five as well so uh, and your point which is about you know i brought the album in i did but i think as we're going to find as we go through this sort of fascinating process uh, i'm bringing we're all going to be bringing in albums that we're bringing in because they deserve to be discussed as much as we might like them or feel indifferently about them, depending on on where we sit. So I think you know that overall score of for the album of seven point two uh, to round it down to the, the sort of the lowest number. I think that's a fair place for this album. Actually, it's patchy, and we we we, we agreed on that, didn't we? While we were discussing it earlier. Well, I, I, we didn't. I mean, no one ever, no one disliked it, did we? And we've not really found an album yet that we actually dislike. And um... You know, but that's our enthusiasm for the music in general, isn't it? I mean, and we're bringing up yeah. the, the we are bringing up the ones that we like. But I, I always said at the start that the downfall on any of these albums will be they'll be judged by their weak tracks. Their place in the ladder will be determined by their weaker tracks. And I'm, you know, I'm a massive betting man. Love my ratings. Need to know what's going on. And if I'm looking at scores under six for tracks, there were five of them, or six or under, and I gave three of them. And that's kind of what brought it down with me. But then ultimately, it's only by an overall figure of 0.325 and 0.375 compared to you guys. Um, so there's no real, there's no real dislike of anything on there, is there? It was a really, it was a good solid album with you know one or two real high points, and I'm pretty sure a, a final score of 7.23 tells you that, doesn't it? So that's Leonard Skinnerd, pronounced Leonard Skinnerd their debut album from 1973. Um, let's move on. Next up was was Rat. Uh, Steve, do you want to talk about the scores for Rat? Rat. So, yeah, so we chose um, their debut album, Out of the Cellar, their debut full album, obviously, because the EP had come the year before, but this was Out of the Cellar. 
their first big ticket number and the scores were it was my choice and therefore I loved it and I thought I'd love it more than anyone but I gave it <laughs> I gave it an well Rich gave it an overall 7.4 we're going to come back to Richard's score we, 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 we both will yeah, yeah. And, and had it not been in lockdown would have slapped him around the face with a kipper but we can't do yes. that so 7.4 from Rich 8.3 from me 8.5 from you and I'm thinking well I I know I loved it I know you loved it so there's absolutely nothing in your or my scores that surprised me. Maybe I could have gone a point, a point or two higher, but up, you know, honesty is is what determines the marks. And happy with my scores, and Rich will have to explain his in due course. Well, I think I think that time has come, actually, Steve. Oh, oh, uh, there's nothing uh, else to say. We gushed. I don't think anybody listening to this is in any doubt about um, how magnificent this album is. Um, so let's let's let let's hang him out to dry it and let him explain his decision to to the audience. Well, I mean, I, I, what I'd like to start off by saying is um, I gave this album a higher score than all three of us gave pronounced. So, uh, so let's start there just to um, you know illustrate perhaps uh, objectivity. As I was looking through back through my my scores of this versus the other albums, I'm you know I was comfortable with you know wh- where where it sat and and how I how I where I rated it. I think it's a good album. I mean, it comes it's, you know it's a seven point four. It's a it, it's a good album. Yeah, as you say, seven point four in the grand scheme of things is a is a perfectly acceptable mark, isn't it? I mean, so that's that's, that's, a, that's well above average. And I forgot to say, Mark, before you come in, um, the the total score for the album based on our three scores was eight point oh six six. Okay, so um, so Rat score a very very respectable eight point zero six six. As Steve says, which brings us to the Joker in the pack for the evening. We just finished talking about it. Rage Against the Machine, Rage Against the Machine, their debut album from early 1992. Richard, this was your choice. So do you want to talk through the scores? Uh, interesting that one, um, Mark's score was above seven. Um, and um, actually, it was uh, Mark's score was slightly higher than Steve's and not too far off mine. Um, so... Steve scored this uh, six point nine five. I was surprised actually. I thought I thought Steve would, would score it higher. So I'm interested in, in in your views about that, Steve. Mark scored a seven point two eight, and and I and I put it up at a at a seven point nine for my own score compared to the other two. Again, I think I, I was quite comfortable with where it was pronounced versus out of the cellar for me. The you know my I gave them fairly close scores, wrapped marginally higher. But I I, I would say those albums in my view are. Around, around, so that I'd rate them around the same. Um, having gone on about to you guys over the last week about <clears throat> how much I don't like Rage Against the Machine, you know, I've scored it as I've scored it. I mean, I, I, I'll repeat what I said earlier on in the show, which is that my life will not be poor if I never hear it again. I, the way I approached this was I took a, a sort of a pseudo scientific approach and I, I gave each track two scores. So I gave it a score for the music because I think that, that I have no issue with the music, actually. And then I gave it a score for the lyrics. And when I say lyrics, I mean angry ranting. And then averaged those two scores to give an overall average track score. So, um, yeah, it comes out at 7.28. I think in the grand scheme of things, that's probably, for me, that's a... F- 
that's if I had been scoring it from my gut, it wouldn't have got above five. So that that kind of hopefully, if nothing else, validates your request, Richard, that I approached it with an open mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All I would say is that um, I didn't approach it in a pseudo scientific way at all. I just I just marked the fucking thing as I'm supposed to do, and I'm actually I actually surprised myself with my six point nine, Rich. I have to say, I mean it. I've got it lagging behind Paranoid here, so, um, you know, which I, I wouldn't have expected, first of all. What I would say, that's the majesty of War Pigs and Hand of Doom, by the way. So we need to work out where these uh, these three have uh, ended up in the Hall of Fame, which will not be where they end up at the end of this process. But as things stand, at the end of week uh, f- uh, four, where are we? Leonard Skinnerd is out of 12 as things stand, Linda Skinner sits at number 11. Uh, Rat out of the cellar sits at number six. And Rage Against the Machine uh, comes in just uh, uh, ooh, 0.1 points above Linda Skinner at number 10. It's very interesting how it's how it's shaping up. I'm very comfortable with the process and how we're rating the tracks and um, as we say, it, it's it, it's back to those two things, isn't it? It's the, the one that the album has got to be consistently good, uh, and two, the three of us have got to agree on it. Okay, so there you are. Those are the scores for Pronounced Leonard Skinnerd, uh, for Rats Out of the Cellar, and for Rage Against the Machine's debut, Rage Against the Machine. We've talked about the scores, talked about their place in the Hall of Fame. Next week, it will be the turn of three new and different albums, because next week we're opening the door up for women in rock, and we are going to be talking about. Um, so we are going to be talking about. We're going to be yes, uh, and we are going to be talking about Vixen's debut, Vixen from 1988. We're going to talk about uh, new wave of British heavy metal stars, Girls School with Demolition 1980, and then we're going to talk about a band that maybe. A lot of people haven't even heard before. Phantom Blue, their second album called Built to Perform. That's on next week's show. We'll see you then. Mark here. I've just stayed on to say thanks for listening to the Enter Sad Men podcast and to remind you that if you need a Hall of Fame fix before next week's show, you can always catch up with us on Facebook and Twitter. Tell us what you think of the show. Send us your own scores for the albums we've discussed. We love that. And generally give us a hard time for scoring too low or too high. You can also check out the up-to-date Hall of Fame list on our website, www.entersadmen.co.uk. See you next week.